The Stone Zone with legendary Republican strategist and political icon and pundit Roger Stone. Stone has served as a senior campaign aide to three Republican presidents. He is a New York Times bestselling author and a longtime friend and advisor of President Donald Roger Trump. Stone. As an outspoken libertarian, Stone has appeared on thousands of broadcasts, spoken at countless venues, and lectured before the prestigious Oxford Political Union and the Cambridge Union Society. Due to his four-plus decades in the political and cultural arena, Stone has become a pop culture icon. And now, here's your host, Roger Stone. Welcome. You are back in the Stone Zone, and yes, I'm Roger Stone. Yesterday was a tumultuous day on the legal front when the U.S. Supreme Court uh, agreed to hear the question of whether Donald Trump had absolute immunity for acts that he took while president. To here to help me break that and other legal news down, first is my co-host, Troy Smith of Slingshot.News. Troy, welcome back in the Stone Zone. Roger, as always, it's an honor to be here today. Uh, we have as our guest uh, one of the most uh, distinguished attorneys in the country, David Schoen is a criminal defense attorney. He's also a noted civil rights attorney. And interestingly, he's a lawyer with particular expertise in the question of ballot access. We are honored to have David Schoen join us now in the Stone Zone. Thank you very much. David, it is uh, great to see you as always. And uh, Saw you last night uh, with Laura Ingram. We're going to actually play that uh, in a little bit. You were brilliant as usual, but let's let's start at the top. Uh, so to try to re review for our viewers the sequence of events, uh, Donald Trump's attorneys raised uh, the defense of uh, presidential immunity at the trial court level in D.C. Uh, in the uh, January 6th related cases against him brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, the judge there, Judge Chutkin, rejected those arguments. Uh, at that point, as Trump was preparing to uh, uh, go to the appeals court, uh, Mr. Smith uh, tried to leapfrog to the U.S. Supreme Court in the interests of his uh, preferred time frame. Uh, but the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ordered that, no, it had to go through the regular process. It then went to a three-judge panel of the appeals court, which, not surprisingly, ruled against uh, President Trump. And then, until yesterday, there was some question as to whether the Supreme Court would hear this matter. Then yesterday, they granted cert and agreed to do so. Um, David, uh, give us your Analysis, analysis of the situation, but most specifically, try to look down the road from a timing point of view uh, in terms of the significance uh, of the high court's decision to hear the case. Well, it's a major uh, turn of events, I think, that the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. I don't think that was certain by any means, but I think it was the right thing to do without any question. It's a monumental case. We have in the civil arena... A Nixon versus Fitzgerald, uh, 1982 case in which the court found absolute immunity from civil action, civil liability for a president, for a president or former president in that case also uh, for act, official acts taken in office. And so this is the criminal side of that. That is, should the same kind of standard or approach or framework apply? 
the, the court accepted one question, and that is whether and to what extent a former president uh, is immune from criminal liability for acts alleged to have been official acts in office. So it's a very straightforward question with a number of uh, elements to it, frankly. Uh, what kinds of things affect that, whether it's an official act, when is it an official act, and so on, former president versus president, although I don't happen to think that's much of a, an issue, really. I mean, Nixon Fitzgerald versus Fitzgerald dealt with a former president. I think the relevant time frame is when the person is in office. But in terms of your specific focus of timing, first of all, the court set it on an expedited track so that it's going to be argued the week of April 22nd. That's extraordinarily fast for this kind of thing. Um, but I don't think we should be driven by um, Jack Smith's uh, quest to get things done as quickly as possible to make sure to get a trial before the election. These are important constitutional issues, and they should be uh, fully fleshed out. This case can't go to trial, in my view at least, before the obstruction statute is fleshed out by the Supreme Court. That's also under review and also relates to the charges in the um, in the uh, case against President Trump. And so I think that it's more important to get it right than to move quickly here. Um, there's no question that there's an agenda to try to get a conviction for President Trump before the election. It's not coincidental that all of these cases were brought at the same time, including a business case that's attacking business practices President Trump and real estate developers have used for decades. It's not a coincidence that they're all brought at the same time um, just before an election for president, especially with President Trump, the clear Republican candidate, and in most polls, and winning the general election. Uh, let's come back to that. I think you make reference to uh, uh, to 1512, uh, the obstructing an official proceeding uh, charge that's been used by so uh, by prosecutors in D.C. against so many of the uh, January 6th uh, defendants. Uh, explain to our audience why this is a significant uh, issue in the Trump case. Well, in the Trump case, it's charged that he was uh, attempting to or obstructed an official proceeding. We don't know from the Supreme Court yet, and we will find out what's an official proceeding, uh, what it means to obstruct, what frame of mind is required. All of these are elements that have to go into the preparation of defense uh, and can only be go into the preparation of defense once we know what the legal parameters are. It will guide jury instructions in the case. It will guide the entire formulation of the defense on the obstruction charges. Um, and so, you know, it's little talked about. Everyone talks about just the immunity thing holding things up. And I was asked a question last night, is it fair when the Trump team, I was asked on CNN, whether it's fair for the Trump team to raise these issues and then complain about uh, timing and ask for a delay in the trial. And I said, well, of course it is. These criminal charges were foisted on them. They never should have been brought in the first place. The lawyers have an obligation to raise all of the legal issues, and the court had an obligation to hear the case as it's doing now, and the same goes with the obstruction charges. That That's relevant to you know virtually all of the January 6th defendants, but even well beyond this. you know we're, we're seeing an effort here by Jack Smith and others to make law that's unique to President Trump, and that's very dangerous. So I think the court did the responsible thing. I heard some commentators on CNN last night saying it was arrogant for the court, Supreme Court of the United States to take review of the immunity case because, after all, the D.C. Circuit wrote a comprehensive opinion. That's an absolutely outrageous position to take. 
This is the high court of the land. They're acting responsibly in hearing the case, and no one knows yet how it's going to come out. Uh, now would probably be a very good time, since I don't want to be duplicative. Let's run that great interview last night uh, with Laura Ingram. The great defenders of democracy have now kicked Trump off another state ballot. Of course, this happened in Cook County, and Illinois Circuit Judge Tracy Porter has ruled that former President Trump is disqualified from the state's March 19th primary ballot and the general election over the, quote, anti-insurrection clause. How is this democracy, David? It's not democracy. It's as anti-democratic as it gets. They're going to get slammed by the Supreme Court. Illinois has long, and especially Cook County, long been heavy-handed with ballot access. I had to go into the federal district court there to challenge the constitutionality of ballot access law on another heavy-handed move they made. They slammed them. They were so adamant about it. When I went to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, they sent six lawyers in to argue against me, and they lost again. They're going to lose this time. It's horrible. It sends a terrible message to the American people. Why are they afraid of the ballot? The ballot is what really makes this country work. Here's what the judge, this judge, uh, Tracy Porter, who was responsible for this outrageous decision tonight in Illinois, this is what she said when she was appointed back in 2021. She said, my motto is impacting lives and changing communities. And that is how, we'll, how I will approach this new position. David, last time I checked, that's not the role of a judge. That's the role, perhaps, of a, an activist or an NGO or maybe a representative. But she, she, she's put it right out there for us. Yeah, and actually, her role ought to be the enforcement of the Constitution, the First and Fourteenth Amendment rights of the voters to vote for a candidate of their choice and of the candidate to be on the ballot. This is absolutely wrong. It's going to get slammed, uh, but they ought to shut it down immediately. And she should probably be sanctioned because she knows what she did is wrong. Right. She knows the matter is pending at the Supreme Court. Yeah, what's amazing about this, uh, reading a great piece by the Illinois Review, is that the Illinois State Elections Board has already ruled that Trump can appear on the ballot. The judge, Tracy Porter, is essentially oversees cases in the traffic division uh, of the Cook County uh, uh, court system. I mean, this is, uh, I guess this was to get her 15 minutes, but I guess my question, David, is this, I believe this is exactly the issue that's already before the high court pertaining to the Colorado ballot access. Uh, it is generally believed, despite the fact that the president's lawyers may have missed a few cogent arguments uh, in their presentation to the court, it's still generally believed uh, that the court is going to uh, overturn the decision by the uh, Colorado Supreme Court to bar Trump from the ballot. If that were to happen, would that have the effect of killing all of these efforts in the various states, uh, since they all seem to be based on the same flawed argument that Trump uh, has participated, not been charged with or convicted of, but has participated in insurrection and is therefore uh, ineligible for the ballot. That's at least part of their argument. Would, uh, would uh, uh, an affirmative decision, or I should say a decision overturning the Colorado Supreme Court uh, clear this issue away in Illinois and other states. Yes, it would. And especially in the Illinois case, all she basically did was copy the Colorado decision. So a clear decision by the Supreme Court will erase all of these efforts. And I think that's what we're going to see. There are many ways the court can go to resolve the issue, but it will re reverse the Colorado case. Um, this clearly cannot apply 
in this case, to keep President Trump off the ballot and it resolve it once and for all. And this judge knows it up there, but she gave a very narrow window now to uh, take it to the Supreme Court. What I think should be done, um, I've made the suggestion already, is that they go immediately into federal district court in the district court there in Chicago and uh, request an injunction to the Illinois State Board of Elections. That's the board that determines who's on the ballot. Um, uh, an injunction requiring the President Trump's name be placed on the ballot. I wouldn't even uh, necessarily get into the state court decision. I don't want to hear any abstention arguments and so on. This is a First and 14th Amendment issue. It's very clear. And the district court has to act immediately to enjoin uh, the State Board of Elections to um, put President Trump's name on the ballot. You know, we, there's a history of this in Chicago. I mentioned last night um, that I uh, brought a case against the Illinois Board of Elections in the past for keeping a small party off of the ballot. They had draconian laws there. They fight very hard to keep them in place. Um, and uh, there, there's a special election that happened up there. They had to redo the ballots before because at the last minute, they tried to pull a fast one and a court said it wasn't constitutional. So this is going to cost Illinois a lot of money if they if this thing sticks, because they're going to have to redo it if they dare to try to run this election and bar President Trump from being on the ballot. OK, uh, Troy, do you have a question for uh, attorney David Schoen? Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Schoen, just as somebody who looks at this stuff constantly and you're constantly <clears throat> I love hearing your explanations on these things and, and going into the laws and things like that. What's your reaction when you see? I mean, it's it appears to me from what you're saying that most of these cases fall apart with a simple review of what they're actually talking about. Uh, what's your reaction to these things being launched all over the country just as somebody who practices law? Yeah, I think it's terrible. Listen, there are a couple of people who happen to be behind almost all of these, um, the agenda in this case, and almost all of these initiatives. Norm Eisen is one. His group, CREW, C-R-E-W, brings these cases. They have other uh, uh, organizations under whose auspices they operate, these folks. Their goal is simply to find some way around the ballot for keeping President Trump off of the ballot. And I always say, you know, it harkens back to something Jerry Nadler said during the Trump administration. And that is, we have we can't trust the voters. We have to find a way uh, outside the ballot to keep President Trump uh, out of office. That's as undemocratic a, a message as I've ever heard from a United States representative. But you, we see how it's playing out here. And, and not only that, they have folks in the media who take the exact opposite position and they say, oh, gee, there's no argument really against the Colorado decision. That opinion was so sound and it's clear that President Trump must be kept off the ballot under the 14th Amendment. You're doing a real disservice to American voters and to the world, I think, frankly, when you misstate constitutional principles like that. There are so many reasons the Colorado Supreme Court decision is wrong on constitutional grounds. All right. Let us uh, go back, if we may, uh, to the uh, the immunity question, because there's one that I have to ask you. I followed the proceedings uh, at the appeals court level. Uh, in one minute and 58 seconds uh, into his presentation, uh, the president's lawyer was asked by Judge Pan, uh, what would happen if President Donald Trump ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his chief political opponent and then ordered SEAL Team 6 to kill any U.S. senator uh, who uh, dared to impeach him over that? Uh, would he have immunity in that case? And surprisingly, the president's lawyer, after a moment, said, my answer is a qualified yes. Uh, even I found that as a non-lawyer 
to be kind of a shocking lawyer. David, had you been uh, uh, before the court, how would you have responded to that question? From his perspective and his framework, I understand why he said yes. I think he's simply wrong. And I think it's wrong to take that kind of extreme approach. It's not necessary to win this case. My answer would have been no, we would not be absolutely immune in that circumstance because that would not be within the outer perimeter of the duties of office. It wouldn't have been an official act in any universe. And that's what Justice Powell wrote in Nixon versus Fitzgerald in 1982. The president's absolute immunity extends to all acts within the outer perimeters of his duties of office. Personally, getting a, you know, a SEAL team to hit a political opponent uh, would not be within an official duty under in, in any realm. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a ludicrous, ludicrous question. But of course, uh, the left has run with it. They've tried to use it to characterize uh, this entire case. Watching the uh, uh, people like Rachel Maddow flipping out yesterday because the Supreme Court agreed to hear this. Now, I was not certain whether they would hear it or not hear it. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Their 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 level of uh, anger all has to do with timing. You see, they are desperate to have a criminal trial uh, in D.C. against uh, President Trump prior uh, to the election. That's really the overriding goal here. Uh, and lawyers like you, who I respect, and several others are really beginning to wonder whether that can actually happen uh, given this Supreme Court decision. Now, I've already been I've already have been surprised by the extent to which the process has been expedited. So, sometimes confounding how special counsel John Durham can take five years to reach his conclusions. So the system can move very quickly when it wants to. It also can move very slowly when it wants to. Uh, David, this is kind of an outside the box question, but uh, the Supreme Court ultimately had to decide about the release of President Richard Nixon's White House tapes. Uh, they ultimately determined that, that Nixon had to turn them over. That, in turn, made them public. I'm curious about the audio tapes of special counsel uh, Robert Hur's uh, interrogation of uh, Joe Biden during his investigation into Biden's, what he called his, willful retention of top secret and classified documents. Um, and it, because democracy dies in darkness, because I'm a full disclosure guy, I'd like to see that tape be made public. Would anyone have standing to bring such an action in that regard? It's a great question, and there's not enough talk about this. Uh, you're 100% right about the importance of transparency, and especially now that President Biden has gone on record as press conference in denying factual assertions that Mr. Herr made. So I think the case has to be brought. Um, I would hope that Norm Eisen would bring it under the auspices of Crew, since he is going around the country um, claiming that he has standing to raise public interest into matters uh, of public's interest into matters of public interest. But I think in this case, um, frankly, uh, there could be a number of uh, a number of entities or people who have standing. But I think at a minimum, uh, Congress needs to demand it because at the end of the day, special counsel has to deliver a report to Congress um, with the approval of the attorney general. The attorney general gave that approval in this case. And the Congress is permitted under the special uh, counsel's guidelines to ask questions. 
I think that the the way to go about this one is that this should be subpoenaed and the subpoena should be enforced by Congress in a court proceeding if that's required. Uh, very, very interesting. Excellent analysis. I had not uh, focused on that. All right, let's turn now, if we may, uh, to the uh, the so-called valuations case, the uh, Engeron case. I mean, uh, there's been plenty of discussion uh, about the case itself and the fact that essentially the judge in this case found Donald Trump and his companies and members of his family guilty prior to there ever really being a trial, prior to the president being allowed to put on any defense. Uh, and that's outrageous enough in itself. Uh, again, to cite the facts of the case, Donald Trump borrowed money from banks. He put up certain assets as collateral, regardless of what he declared the value of that collateral to be. The banks conducted their own due diligence, uh, their own appraisals to determine whether they thought this was a good loan, a safe loan. They made the loans. They were paid back in full, in some cases paid back, oh, in all cases on time, in some cases actually paid back early. They made as much as $40 million in, in interest. There's no victim here. Uh, there's no complaint in here. This wasn't... This complaint wasn't brought by a bank or someone who claimed they were somehow cheated or defrauded. It was brought uh, by the attorney general, uh, Letitia James, under a, a law under which no one else had ever been prosecuted. Uh, but to, I want to go to the more recent part of this. Just in order to appeal this, there the judge is requiring Trump to post a, a bond, as I understand it, that it costs as much as a half billion dollars, uh, and there's actually some risk to that. In other words, he may, even if he gets to appeal, lose some of that money. How can this be considered fair? I mean, everything you just said is 100% correct. Uh, it can't be considered fair by any measure, by any standards. Even Trump haters don't think it's fair. Even Trump haters who are in business have basically taken the position there, but for the grace of God, go I. Some are moving out of New York. Some are threatening to move out of New York. All are saying it's unfair. Um, even people outside of business. Jeb Bush wrote recently wrote uh, an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal saying how this undermines the integrity of the system. You're 100% right. The judge, this judge, Engeron, even addresses in the beginning of his opinion why this is not really fraud. He says fraud requires certain things, and that's always materiality and misrepresentation that it's relied on to one's detriment and all that. But then he says along came General Ex Executive General Law uh, 6312 in New York, and that changed the whole ballgame. So just as you pointed out, no loss is required, no victim is required, no materiality is required, no reliance is required. That's not fraud. It's some made up law that's now used to punitive effect. And so there are so many, in my view, so many constitutional infirmities with what went on here. You start with the amount of damages. Um, that looks like an Eighth Amendment through the 14th Amendment violation, excessive fine, um, and so on. But I think it's even more basic than that. I think that the law itself is standardless. We don't know what the burden of proof is. The law provides that the judge can uh, order whatever relief he, quote, deems proper. I don't even know how to begin to approach that, what the standard would be for or the framework for what the relief could be. But then there's another issue. They didn't get a jury trial in the case. And so there's a 2011 case from that same court, Justice Ramos, 
uh, former respected Supreme Court justice in New York. Supreme Court is the trial court. And he finds that there is no right to a jury trial under this section of the law. But his reason is because it's not really about damages. This is just supposed to be an equitable measure. If you find that someone committed fraud in business, you can adjust it by limiting their business practice or something like that. But he said damages are just incidental. Well, in this case, damages are the tail wagging the dog. The, it's extraordinary amount, um, uh, 355 million with interest compiling, it's 450 something million. There's no end to the thing. Um, and so that's clearly punitive. Uh, you clearly have to have the right to a jury trial. I wouldn't just argue that the amount of damage is excessive because I don't think the full remedy in this case should be just a reduction in damages. That it shouldn't certainly be. There shouldn't be any damages. But I think you need a completely new trial. I think the law is unconstitutional as applied um, for many reasons, some of which I've said. And uh, I think the whole thing was misguided. And from the start, we know the agenda was a political one. The attorney general ran on a platform of getting President Trump. He wasn't even under investigation at the time. That's clearly unethical, inappropriate. No one should accept that from a public servant. Um, because again, you know, today it's Donald Trump. Tomorrow it's somebody else with some other attorney general. So this case has to be reversed ultimately. But you're right in focusing on this bond issue because it's a killer. It's not appropriate to make someone who wants to appeal a case with these kinds of substantive issues in it put up any kind of bond. It's in the public interest to have the appeal go forward. It's really quite uh, extraordinary. Now, of course, uh, given the delay in the January 6th, and what appears to be a delay in the so-called documents trial uh, that Jack Smith has brought in the 11th District of Florida, uh, they're now moving ahead with what should be a regular, if anything, a business records uh, case, uh, a civil litigation, which uh, prosecuting attorney, district attorney of Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, has bumped up to be a criminal trial. Uh, this has the same markings in terms of motive uh, as the so-called valuation trial, although I think it has the potential from a public relations point of view to be uh, more damaging to the president uh, because uh, of the subject matter. The court will be relying on Michael Cohen as their chief witness, who uh, I think that's uh, uh, that's extraordinarily uh, dangerous. But, but David, what is your assessment of the of that upcoming trial? Well, first of all, you know, the judge is a bit of a nightmare. He's a real Trump hater. Um, he's also I found him to be a sort of very insecure fellow who's uh, very much subject to what he believes public opinion to be very sensitive to what's going on in the courtroom and that the press is there. That's dangerous. He's a Trump hater um, contributor. We know, you know, to uh campaign from the other party. But beyond all of that, I think the case is fatally flawed in its indictment. The indictment is a cockamamie, jerry-rigging, jerry-rigged um, contraption by which they charge a misdemeanor of errors in the business records. But under New York law, it can be a felony if the misdemeanor was intended to commit another crime. The problem here is to bring it, make it to a felony, the grand jury never has identified what that so-called other target crime is. I think that's a fatal defect in the indictment. I don't think it can be cured by a bill of particulars or any other measure. This is what the grand jury found 
and didn't find. And so, for example, one theory is they uh, falsified business records, allegedly, in order to uh, advance his election uh, by covering up the Stormy Daniels thing that would advance his election prospects. That's that would be one defense then to uh, to meet to face that with to oppose that kind of theory with. Another theory is a allegedly doctored business records for tax purposes to avoid certain taxes or to get certain tax advantages. That's a completely different defense. Without the grand jury identifying what the so-called target crime was, there's no way to defend it and there's no way to protect, uh, raise a claim of double jeopardy if the state loses this time around and then says, oh no, what we really meant was the following and they charge the other theory the next time around. So I think it's fatally flawed in that regard. They're also going to have to deal with a number of logistical issues. That is, there's a book out there that they, a special prosecutor they brought in to investigate this matter wrote. And in it, he just details why the office was fundamentally against this prosecution, including Alvin Bragg, why the higher ups with the experienced people in the office thought this case never should have been brought. And then as to Michael Cohen, you know, we can't leave out that Bob Costello was Michael Cohen's lawyer at some point. He's on record already as saying that Michael Cohen told him a completely different story about uh, the underlying matter here. And so you can be sure he's going to appear as a witness in the case. It's a case that never should have been brought criminally. But again, we see a prosecutor, this time Alvin Bragg, running on a campaign promising to get Trump. Yeah, the timing is what seems uh, extraordinarily suspicious. As soon as it became clear that because of the federal uh, litigation, uh, that there would be a delay in the January 6th trial. And there also appears to be a delay in the so-called documents trial uh, taking place uh, in the 11th District uh, or 11th Circuit of Florida. Well, then it was uh, Mr. Bragg's uh, turn. Uh, I think strictly from a political point of view, uh, I think President Trump actually benefited politically, not certainly not financially, but politically, uh, from the overreach of the valuation case. Whether this case will have the same effect given some of the lurid accusations, well, that remains to be seen. Uh, you're right. Uh, just the idea that the judge gave a contribution to Joe Biden's presidential campaign, even though I think it was a 15 dollar contribution. I think that's immaterial. Any contribution creates an appearance of bias uh, under which I think the judge should have disqualified himself, but very clearly uh, he refuses to do that. All right, uh, Troy, uh, we one more question here for David Schoen, who has a busy day. I'm going to let you ask the final question, and then we'll let David go back to practicing law. Uh, Mr. Sean, it's an honor uh, to meet you here. And I just wanted to ask you, really, uh, as you're looking across the country and you see all these cases, is there one in particular that you think would be the biggest problem for President Trump in the way that it's being set up? And and also, if you could also kind of go into how we can kind of fix this so we don't see these rogue prosecutors and everybody kind of going after people for things that you're telling us are just not legitimate. Boy, I, I really don't know how it can be fixed. I mean, we've come to a point now, uh, I, I think we saw it in the snap impeachment of President Trump, so we're going to see tit for tat in that. But here, um, you know, I'd like to think that uh, President Trump uh, wins this election. He's going to just rise above this and say, listen, we have to get this country back to doing the business of the country. And this is what he did so well with the economy and with foreign policy before. 
And let's just focus on it. And hopefully that stops it. The temptation is going to be from many in the public, at least half the country, to say, you know, there's got to be payback for what these folks have done. Uh, I, I think we need to move beyond that. But right now we've got to deal with all of these cases. As for, you know, which is the biggest problem? I mean, right now, if he's really going to go to trial, March 25th, and that's the immediate problem on the plate. There are full defenses to all of these cases. There are uh, motions that have been denied, but I think they raised tremendous issues for appeal. But it's all a giant distraction from the election campaign. The people want to hear about the issues from the candidates these days. And I think it, we that's one reason we see his poll numbers going through the roof every time these things happen. And as Roger said, especially with the Judge Engeron case, people at all walks of life think that it was extraordinary, un, extraordinarily unfair. You have the banks literally in that case saying they love the loans, they want Trump business, and that makes sense. And they did their own due diligence and they discounted any outside valuation and so on. It's absurd. And that's why you see they're not getting the money if it has to be paid. The state gets the money and that's just a windfall that's undeserved. Uh, one final question, which I uh, preserve as a, uh, as a, uh, a, uh, a privilege as the host. In the Florida documents case, there seems to be a, a lot of, uh, of a legal action surrounding uh, the whole question of confidentiality. It seems to me that the prosecutors don't want to reveal either to the plaintiff or to the public what these alleged documents that they claim the president improperly held on to uh, regard. How can that possibly be? I think that it's wrong. I think the judge has been very careful. You know, she's come under attack by most in the left wing. She's the only judge in all of these cases, in my view, at least, who's acted like a judge. Um, but anyway, uh, what she said most recently in her decisions is that some of the sort of secondary defendants don't need access to the defend uh, to the documents because their charges don't require the same mens rea, the same state of mind, the same intention with respect to uh, national defense documents. But she is giving President Trump's team, uh, it appears, access to the documents to know what it is the government's talking about. But you're right. I mean, there shouldn't be a veil of secrecy in any of these things. Obviously, if there's classified information, we don't, the public doesn't need to see the classified information, but we can have a sheet that tells us the nature of the matters involved. But they even want to keep, you know, jury questionnaires secret um, because some jurors, Mr. Smith says, might have strong feelings about Donald Trump. That's what the public needs to see. The public needs to see the political nature of the prosecutions and what they call a fair and impartial, uh, unbiased jury. I, again, I heard someone on CNN last night saying, you know, the American public demands the right to have President Trump brought before an impartial, unbiased jury. It's not coincidental the timing of the cases or where the cases were brought. Jack Smith well knows the demographics of the jury in D.C. and what the voting pattern was in D.C. It's not coincidental that that case was brought there or in New York City. Excellent point. Uh, it, 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 I guess if a juror has a, a, a uh, an antagonistic view towards President Trump, I'm not really certain how it's possible for them to sit in judgment, put that aside as an impartial juror. Now, I admit it should be hard. It will be hard to find a, a juror, a prospective juror who has no opinion of President Trump or Joe Biden, for that matter. On the other hand, it would seem to me that that should be uh, that should be the goal in jury selection. On the other hand, I lived through this and I can tell you the jurors in my case um, 
were not well disposed to President Donald Trump. All right, David Schoen, criminal defense attorney, thank you so much for joining us yet again in the Stone Zone with your extraordinary analysis. Uh, I'm going to go look for your other interview with Laura Ingram because I want to see you talking about immunity. But thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us today. Always an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, all right, uh, folks, um, a little housekeeping matter here. Uh, in order to keep uh, the lights on at the Stone Zone, um, we have a, a couple of important sponsors. Now, I, I am uh, someone who has a long history of uh, interest uh, and uh, personal practice of uh, alternative medicine on a prophylactic basis, meaning uh, I take a, a lot of natural herbs and supplements. Uh, I've used acupuncture prophylactically for many years. Uh, I, it's not that I don't, it's not that I reject all Western medicine, but I approach it with some skepticism. There is one important product that I want to tell you about because it has literally changed my life. Uh, and that product uh, is Cardio Miracle. Now, Cardio Miracle uh, is, a, uh, is a proprietary blend of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is, exists as one of the body's most potent natural antioxidants. It's a short-lived gas produced in the walls of the arteries and the veins. Uh, and as you get older, the natural production naturally drops. Uh, it has a number of crucial functions in the body, keeping blood pressure and cholesterol uh, at healthy levels, supporting the anti-inflammatory process, promoting general good health, uh, and a sense of well-being, but also supporting natural energy. I find uh, that I get a burst of natural energy and much quicker recovery uh, when I'm taking Cardio Miracle. Now, it's uh, very easy to take. You take a capsule of it twice a day uh, mixed with water or juice. It tastes like raspberry. It's quite pleasant tasting. And I found an almost immediate uh, improvement uh, in in my uh, in my uh, uh, well-being uh, and also in my natural energy, I put in long hours putting together the Stone Zone as well as producing my WABC weekend radio show as well as cranking out print media at StoneZone.com, uh, and this has helped me enormously. So, folks, check out this great product by going to CardioMiracle.com. Cardio Miracle.com. It is a powerful uh, combination of nitric oxide, both a proprietary blend and a broader antioxidant blend. You can actually get all of your necessary uh, vitamins uh, on a daily basis from Cardio Miracle. I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a doctor. Uh, if you have heart problems, I urge you to see uh, a cardiologist. But for general health, uh, for general cardiovascular health. Uh, and uh, I think for quick recovery and generally uh, a boost in natural energy, energy, let me recommend Cardio Miracle. Once again, go to CardioMiracle.com uh, and use promo code STONE when you do so. Promo code STONE. I think you'll be very, very pleased with this product. All right, Troy, uh, let's go back to the political scene. Uh, David Schoen, I think, made a very key point there at the end. Yesterday, first time I've seen this in the Emerson College poll, pardon me, that's incorrect, in the Harvard-Harris poll, 
uh, for the first time, we saw numbers that indicated that even if Donald Trump were to be convicted of some of these alleged crimes with which he is accused, he seems to beat Joe Biden in the polling anyway. This is a, a sea change. This is a this is a, a more recent development. Now, the Harvard Harris poll. Uh, this is conducted by Mark Penn, uh, who is a Democrat, uh, but more precisely, I think one of the leading survey research experts in the country. Uh, he is not somebody who sugarcoats or tries to color his research. He's very, very straightforward has a huge amount of integrity. I've actually known him, I don't know, almost almost 40 years. Um, I, I find this a very significant development. What do you think? Well, and and I'm 100% interested to hear your thoughts on, on how we kind of examine polls, Roger, because I think for the most part, I think it's important for you to talk about, you specifically, because you review this stuff so often, um, how polls mislead people and why it's so important to focus on polls that matter. And I think, uh, you know, the, the shoes are a perfect example. You know, people in the mainstream media were freaking out about the shoes, Roger, the Trump shoes. And, and they were making fun of them. They were making fun of the shoes. And it almost reminded me of 2016. And I think what they're failing to realize here is that Trump has become a cultural phenomenon. He was political in 2016, and he had a cultural aspect to his aura, his being, um, and who he is. He had a cultural aspect to that, uh, but he, it wasn't really the dominating aspect of it. Now with him uh, being a, a really a, a, a figurehead of, of what it is to be uh, a, a forgotten American, he's really become the symbol for hardworking Americans, for people that are just trying to get by, for people who have been persecuted, and and the the mainstream media has been complicit in pushing these cases. So in in reality, they've created the the cultural phenomenon that is Trump. And I think the reason that Trump is not going to be hurt by anything here, even if he does get convicted in any of the cases, is is the same reason that uh, famous rappers or famous artists or musicians like Johnny Cash or Jimi Hendrix or whoever who get arrested, they don't their popularity doesn't go down. In fact, their album sales go up because those people are being related to. President Trump is a relatable person, something that you don't see often in politics, Roger. And I'd be interested to hear if you've ever seen somebody who had as much of a cultural impact as Trump in politics, in, just in general. Uh, you know, I agree with you. Uh, when I first saw that he was going to be marketing these sneakers, when I saw he was going to sneaker con, I basically said, what in the world? Uh, well, first of all, he made a lot of money money that unfortunately he badly needs now to post the bond where they're asking him to put up almost a half billion dollars just in order to have his appeal heard. Outrageously unfair. Uh, I think he's going to meet those requirements. Uh, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough to know whether he has to sell certain assets or borrow money to do it or don't know what his cash position is because remember, his companies are privately held. But uh, I noticed a couple things. First of all, the sneakers sold out almost immediately. I mean, yeah. they're they're not they're not available. And it is my understanding is that they, at least this version was a limited edition. So you snooze, you lose. I didn't buy a pair. Now I wish I had. Although I'm not sure I could have gotten in fast enough. But secondarily, there are a lot of working class Americans, uh, minorities, and others. Uh, who uh, who like this uh, who like this culture who like uh, the sneakers like the whole thing 
and I think it makes Trump more relatable, makes him more of every man, more like the average American. I just, I, I'm sorry, I can't picture as much as I as hard as I might George H. W. marketing a pair of Bush sneakers. I just, I can't even begin to uh, uh, imagine that. To go to your question about polls, it, it's one. There's two misnomers here that need to be constantly, unfortunately, uh, revisited. Uh, I have said on the show many, many times uh, that one cannot look just at one poll uh, and reach a conclusion. One needs to look at several polls taken essentially within the same time frame. But even those polls have to have a certain professional and scientific methodology. In other words, the sample size needs to be large enough to be scientifically and statistically uh, significant. Uh, the order of the questions has to be uh, in an unbiased manner so that before you introduce positive or negative information regarding the candidate or, or public figure that you're testing, uh, you are asking the questions prior to introducing that information in order to gauge what the impact of the information may be. Uh, you also want to look at the, the uh, general, the, the manner in which the sample is drawn. In other words, it, is it a representative sample of the larger jurisdiction uh, that you're trying to measure in? So for example, I see this all the time. I will see polls, but then I notice that they're not of registered voters. They're just uh, uh, they're just of citizens, uh, and they were selected through random digit dialing. That's not a politically uh, uh, viable or scientifically valid poll. Now, can you take a poll and make it show whatever you want? Yes, you can cook the sample. You can cook the wording of the questions. You can cook uh, the the order of the questions. Now, people go out and say, Roger Stone said all polls are fake. No, that's not even remotely what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that you go to Real Clear Politics, which I really like, and you look at the Real Clear Politics average to look at all of the polling within a given time frame. Uh, and if all of the polls or the overwhelming number of polls are showing one thing, uh, but one poll is showing something else, well, then that poll is what they call an outlier. It is unlikely to be correct within the larger context of looking at all of the polls. So uh, if you look at it within that context right now, Donald Trump is leading uh, in every swing state as well as maintaining a narrow lead nationally. Now, one of the things you always look for is to see whether either candidate is over 50%. Uh, a candidate who's over 50% is uh, in not impregnable, but much stronger position. We still have a, a race in this country. It's hard for me to look at these polls and figure out how, in some cases, 46% of the people are voting for Joe Biden. It's almost hard for me to figure that out, but that's, a, that's not a scientific observation. That's just a personal observation, uh, when a candidate moves over 50, they are considered to be uh, in excellent position, maybe even impregnable position to win the race. This is one of the reasons why uh, I am rejecting 
the advice uh, of Richard Nixon, who has often said, told me directly, that in choosing a vice presidential running mate, one should not look for an individual who can help you, just find someone who doesn't hurt you. Well, generally speaking, I think what he means by that is select somebody once you determine that they are fully qualified, that they have the experience, uh, the judgment, the temperament, uh, the commitment to the America First agenda to potentially be president, if God forbid that should become necessary, then and only then can you look at the political considerations. But I think a lot can be said for selecting somebody who is sure-footed. Running for vice president of the United States is not the same as, say, running for governor of a small state like South Dakota. It's a very, very different situation. It's a high-pressure atmosphere in which, candidly, the fake news media, which is hostile to Republican candidates, are seeking to find some controversy, seeking to find some way uh, to, uh, to damage your ticket through a perceived misstep of some kind. One of the classic tricks they use is to try to get the presidential and vice presidential candidates to contradict each other, or more precisely, to get the vice presidential candidate to contradict the presidential candidate. So you want somebody uh, who has uh, who has political experience beyond just the experience of being elected in a small state. Uh, yes, I have said, and I will say again, I'm intrigued uh, by the uh, potential for the nomination of Tulsi Gabbard, who is uh, now an independent, a former Democrat congresswoman. Uh, I recognize that online this is getting mixed results. Some people love the idea. Some people hate the idea. Let let me be very clear. I'm not endorsing anyone. Uh, I'm for whoever Donald Trump is for. Uh, And so I I am merely having a discussion of the potential uh, of her candidacy, which given her record uh, as a a combat veteran in both Iraq and in Kuwait, her current status as a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve, uh, her her uh, evolution on a number of key issues. On the key issue of war and peace, uh, she's clearly very solid. She is uh, very anti-neocon. She's against giving more money to Ukraine. Uh, she clearly has had an evolution when it comes to Second Amendment rights. Uh, Troy, when I interviewed her for my WABC radio show on Sunday, she was calling me from a shooting range in Arizona where she was in a shooting contest. You could you could hear the gunshots uh, in the background. Uh, and, of course, she is uh, pro-life, which I think is vitally important uh, within the Trump coalition. So I'm intrigued by that idea. Now, people say, oh, well, she was for Bernie Sanders. Well, you know, had I been a Democrat and I had to choose between Hillary Clinton, uh, the war machine candidate, or Bernie Sanders, who was opposed to war, I guess I'd have been for Sanders as well. Uh, although I disagree with probably most of his other uh, positions. So a- anyway, uh, I'm going to continue talking about this. Um, some people don't like it, but I'll be honest with you, I really don't care what they like. Anyway, here's a, a matter that is uh, perhaps the most important we're going to talk about today. Uh, if you've uh, followed uh, me here at the Stone Zone or at my WABC radio show, uh, I uh, the only thing I probably take more seriously 
than politics is food. Uh, and uh, I'm a kind of an amateur chef. I, I cook Italian. Uh, and I always use and insist that others use San Marzano tomatoes. Now, San Marzano tomatoes are not a brand of tomato. It is a style of tomato that is only grown in the San Marzano Valley uh, of Italy, and they're imported into this country by a number of companies. However, a woman in California uh, whose name is, let's see, Andrea Valiente, has filed a lawsuit against Simpson Imports, a Pennsylvania tomato seller, claiming that they are using misleading labels to give the impression that the tomatoes they are selling are San Marzano tomatoes. Uh, this, is a, this is not the first time I brought this, this problem to the American people. Uh, it is claimed uh, that the tomatoes from this company, Simpsons Imports, are priced higher than many other canned tomato can brands, which contributes, according to her lawsuit, to the plausibility of the consumer's expectation that the tomatoes are indeed San Marzano tomatoes. That comes actually from the judge in this federal case. Now, the labeling of San Marzano tomatoes in the United States has been loose. In the European Union, only tomatoes that are grown in a specific region of Italy and fulfill a number of other specific requirements receive the designation of protective origin, or DOP. Look for that always, folks, DOP, to show that they are genuine, authentic San Marzano tomatoes. In the United States, many tomato sellers claim to grow straw strains of San Marzano's and may sell those as San Marzano-style tomatoes, but they do not have the official European certification. Folks, this is a fugazi. This is a fraud. So to wrap up the Stone Zone today, for all your Italian cooking, for all the recipes you can find in my book, Stone's Rules, which you can buy at Stone Zone in the store, always be sure that you are using genuine San Marzano's uh, authentic plum tomatoes from Italy and that you're not using San Marzano style tomatoes. That has to be the last word today. I want to thank my co-host, Troy Smith. Hopefully I've made him very hungry uh, with this important <laughs> news item. Uh, until tomorrow, I'm Roger Stone. On behalf of Troy and myself, thank you for joining us today in the Stone Zone and Godspeed. Roger Stone and nothing wrong. They wanna get me like I'm Roger Stone. They wanna get me like I'm Roger Stone. They wanna frame me like I'm Roger Stone. They wanna frame me like I'm Roger Stone.